Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, it is meaningful that the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences has formally apologized to Sachin Littlefeather, the Apache and Yaqui actress and activist who, in 1973, refused the Best Actor Award on behalf of her friend Marlon Brando because of Hollywood's history of derogatory depiction of Native Americans. Some cheered, but a lot of the audience booed, some complete with tomahawk chops, and John Wayne evidently had to be physically restrained. Arriving at Brando's house after the ceremony, Littlefeather was shot at. It's good that the Academy is apologizing, but the proof, of course, is in the material acknowledgement of the message that Native Americans have been treated poorly in U.S. entertainment and, we could add, news media, and that that has an impact. Things are changing, and we need to check what that change amounts to, not just visibility, but justice and redress and the improvement of lives. The film Powerlands explores the treatment of indigenous people around the world, not in terms of media imagery, but in terms of the resource extraction that is stealing water, minerals, and homelands. It talks not just about harm, but about resistance. And so it also contributes to the seeing of Native communities in their full humanity. We'll talk with Powerlands filmmaker Ivy Camille Manybead-So. Also on the show, you might consider you're making a misstep when even Time magazine calls you out. Hardly a progressive bastion, the outlet ran a piece recently critical of Joe Biden's call for the hiring of 100,000 more police officers and some $13 billion to police budgets, calling it part of a manipulative message that if we feel unsafe, it is because we have not invested adequately in police, jails, and prisons. Contributor Eric Reinhardt noted that using a more comprehensive understanding of safety, including factors like homelessness and eviction, overdose risk, financial insecurity, preventable disease, police violence, and unsafe workplaces, which statistically present far greater preventable threats to everyday life than crime, it's readily apparent that America's police-centric safety policies do not effectively promote shared safety. This is not new knowledge, while it obviously still needs saying. We'll revisit just a bit of it from Counterspin's 2017 conversation with Alex Vitale, professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College and author of the book, The End of Policing. That's coming up. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Powerlands is an award-winning documentary film about resource extraction and its impacts on indigenous communities around the world. But if that's all we as watchers take away, then we're sort of missing the point and maybe almost part of the problem. The film is about resource colonization, about the way that the same for-profit corporate forces that once took away whole peoples now do the same thing under the radar by usurping the resources, the minerals, the water, out from under those people. It asks those of us who aren't at the immediate sharp end to see 
and to connect our interest in not harming people in Colombia, for example, with the desire to make use of the stuff that we don't even know comes out from that extraction, that arrangement. So saying Powerlands, the film, has won awards might imply that we understand that there's a message and we are engaged with answering that question, but that's not necessarily the case. So if Powerlands didn't need to be made, well, then Powerlands wouldn't have been made. We are joined now by Ivy Camille Manybead So. Powerlands is her first feature film. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Ivy Camille Manybead So. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, many people might say, okay, you're documenting something in the film. You're showing us something. But you started out to say a certain kind of thing, and then it kind of expanded into many, many things. Can you just maybe start us off where you started off and what was the process about? Yeah, so I grew up in Black Mesa, where Peabody Coal and BHP have been mining since the 1960s. And my family is on the wrong side of the fence. We're on what's called HPL, Hopi Partition Lands, not NPL, Navajo Partition Lands. So I was born into the resistance. I come from the resistance. So that's what I've always grown up knowing. And when I first met Jordan Flaherty, my producer, he had just come back from Columbia filming a BHP coal mining site. And we were talking about the similarities between the two. And that's really where the whole conversation started. It's being like, wow, this one company has done the exact same thing to these two communities. And you almost wouldn't be able to tell the difference besides the language and they have monkeys. They look very similar. They sound very similar. We eat very similar. And one thing that I've always grown up with is having what I call poverty porn constantly around me and like National Geographic put on news stations, like even late at night with that sad Sarah McLaughlin music behind it, it would be pictures of my family and my home and the things that I resonated with, flies flying around, extended bellies. And when I see my home, that's not what I see. I see vibrant, brilliant, smart, funny people. And that's exactly what we saw in Colombia and in the Philippines and in Oaxaca and in Standing Rock. And for me, it was just showing those human connections, those emotional connections, as well as showing that, that we're all connected by these corporations at the same time. We're all fighting the same, not to say like enemy, but enemy. Yeah. And I think that indigenous people should be telling indigenous stories because we see ourselves as people more so than anyone else ever will. And the thing is, is everyone's indigenous to somewhere, so behave like you're indigenous. And that's what the root of the film is, is that we're all together. We're all in this together. We all laugh. We all cook. We all love. We all dance and we all need this planet to survive. You know, I launched us right into the middle of it, and I think many folks come to it as, all right, well, there's a relationship between folks who need resources and folks who have resources, but there's a reason to start in the complicated middle and to say that it's not a simple question of users and extractors. We're people across these lines. And what I think is so extremely important about the film is that it makes those 
connections and it connects those dots. I think we're past it in 2022. I think those of us who are trying to think critically are past the idea that somehow there are some people who don't mind being harmed and that there are some people who we can just like Pinterest their way of life, not for nothing. Here are people in the film, their water is being exhausted. And I know for a fact that there are folks who are like, oh, water, water is life. You know, we have to be one world. We have to connect it. And I feel like that's what this film does. Okay, so we can look at Arizona, which is where I'm based currently. And we are seeing Lake Powell drop to levels that it's never been this low before. We're watching Lake Mead drop to levels that have never been this low before. The Southwest is in a massive drought. The thing is, is because we're all on this planet together, the entire ecosystem affects everywhere else. So this huge drought here is actually helping to cause massive floods on the East Coast because we've got this heat bubble that's being formed. It's pushing all of the would-be water coming here up and over, and it's creating floods elsewhere. And that's just a small way to look at it. We're losing water here. We're flooding people out. It means that that water is no longer drinkable. It's non-potable. The less potable water that we continue to have is going to affect the entire world. And that's just a very small, simple way to look at it. There's so many different effects that go into it. Cinder hills are something that are very special to this area, and they're a catcher of water. But they've been being mined for decades to create asphalt, which also helps to cause a heat bubble, which pushes water over, and then it floods somewhere else, and then again, we lose our potable water. So when we look at it, it's like you making a change in one location can really affect everywhere else globally. And we can see it happening in lots of different places. Here in the Southwest, we have massive wildfires, and you know, and then the East Coast is having these floods, and it's just going to keep getting more and more extreme until we as people come together and decide to fix the problem together. And we're looking in your own backyard is the best place to start. And I hope that that's one message that the film gets across. This isn't just in these remote, small, quote-unquote, third-world countries. It's happening literally in your backyard. Look at Flint, Michigan. Look at what's happening in even like Skid Row down in LA. That is causing extremely devastating to people. One, we should be treating that people as people but if we were to help like say clean up that area and get those people the same mental health services that they needed and just the simple way for a house to fix houselessness is obviously give people houses it would entirely revitalize that area and we could you know start using a lot of those areas it's like farmland um, where we grow crops that aren't water heavy based it's just, there's so many different ways and so many different ideas and i know every single person out there has an idea and if we each implemented them we could be living in the future that we all dream about with flying cars and like healthy ecosystems. Yeah, no, it's part of what I resent so much about corporate media is the way they deny us the possibilities, the way that we can imagine these beautiful futures. Let me just ask you about the film, you know, any accounting of struggle, which is what Powerlands is about, it's going to include unspeakable trauma. And that's why folks should be aware that if they watch Powerlands, they're going to cry. But at the same time, it also includes this irrepressible joy. And any conversation 
that doesn't entail both of those is kind of not capturing it. But then again, and I know this is a very hard question, when you make a film, it's about communication, right? You know, it's about moving people to action. And I just would love to ask you, how do you balance the struggle and the joy in a way to communicate some message to the people who are going to see this film? Well, I think a huge part of that goes back to this is my community that we started telling the story in. This is my family. These are my friends. So I grew up in the struggle. I grew up having politicians come out and threaten family members. I grew up seeing family members get sick from cancer or other various ailments because of this stuff happening. But at the same time, I also grew up going to ceremonies where me and the kids would be running around pretending to make rocks together, where me and my cousins would all sleep on the same mattress outside under the stars and tell ghost stories. And those are very similar moments that I think everyone shares are those simple moments. There's a moment in the film where you see two young girls whispering to each other. And that's a moment that everybody has experienced is watching two young children talk to each other and giggle. And so when we're talking about these moments, it's not just like, oh, look at how hard it is for these poor brown people. It's look at how hard this is for the entire world to be dealing with. And here's an example of how these folks are getting through it. And that brings us back to where we started, which is the idea that you very quickly identify the idea of resource colonization, which I think is an excellent term, as a global thing. You started with Dereta, but it was very clear that this was something that's happening everywhere and that there was resonance everywhere for this message and this conversation. Yeah, we're going to keep finding that because the capitalist system where it's for profit and not for people is going to continue to put us in these situations. And the thing is, is especially here in this country, Indigenous people have been the ones who have been put into those situations the longest at this point in time. So if you have any questions, reach out to us. We have lots of support. We have lots of community. We are willing to talk to people. And there's so many different ways to go about it. But we've been living specifically here in America on this land for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So we know how to grow food without depleting the resources of this natural environment. And we know how to harvest things without depleting these resources. One good example is this uh, white sage trend that's hitting. A lot of people are buying white sage that's not sourced in a sustainable way. And it's actually really detrimental to the indigenous people in Southern California and Northern Mexico. But if we were to, say, start outsourcing to only indigenous suppliers or sustainable suppliers, then we would be able to help sustain that ecosystem so that everyone can have white sage and everyone can be burning it. But it's a, So it's like we need to be working together. And I think it's really possible because I see so many people coming to these screenings and coming to these events being like, well, what can I do? What can I do? And I'm not always going to have all the answers. I'm but one person. But if you look in your own backyard, you just ask ground. Someone out there is already doing it, and you can definitely get in on the ground floor. And there's also the chance that you could potentially make that resistance better. I'd love that, actually, because my nightmare is you support a system that basically erases a certain kind of people who say that their relationship is with the land and that they're where they are is part of who they are. And 
you as a government support that erasure and that you as a culture then try to recreate aesthetically that culture when isn't it neat about how people are in relationship with the land you know i guess what i'm saying is i am very angry and resentful about the idea that media tell us that it's okay to erase and harm people and then they're gonna out of the other side of their mouth tell us that isn't it neat to think about being the sort of person who has a relationship with the land? It's the, it's beyond hypocrisy. It's just a thing that makes me very angry that has an, a particular relationship with the way U.S. news media talk about indigenous people in the United States. So I guess after that rant, I'm just asking you, is there anything in terms of news media that you would like to see more or less of or framework shifting that you think could be meaningful? I have really enjoyed seeing in the past two years the amount of representation that has been risen within media. The thing is, is I have been making films since I was nine years old. I'm 27. And my uncle has been making films. My cousins have been making films. My aunts have been making films. But we have never been able to break into like the Hollywood or the main media cohorts in order to be seen and visualized. And it's just now starting that our work is getting out there. Mm-hmm. A lot of that came from Standing Rock and the remembrance that we as Indigenous people still exist. And so people kind of got into it, became a trend. And so let's hopefully not make it a trend that goes away. But there are so many of us out there who are creating incredible content and stories and telling these stories. And we've been doing it for decades. So there's so much out there. It's just definitely the accessibility of it is a lot harder because we don't have the same resources as, say, like Warner Brothers or Disney or Fox or one of those who is getting their larger stories out. So it is amazing to see us in representation for the first time ever. That is an accurate representation, and it's incredible. So if you're Indigenous, keep telling your stories. We want to hear them. If you're not Indigenous, you are Indigenous to somewhere, so keep telling your stories. And I think it's just so incredible to see the vibrancy of the truth and reality of human being told for really the first time, and especially Hollywood media. Well, we're going to continue to stay, I hope, in conversation with you. We've been speaking with Ivy Camille Many Beads. So thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Oh, thank you so much. Joe Biden has announced a new plan to fund the police, suggesting rhetorically that that call is meaningfully twinned with demanding more accountability for law enforcement that, according to the site Mapping Police Violence, have killed 391 people so far in 2022. As we record on September 1st, we're learning about police in Columbus, Ohio, shooting a black man to death in his bed while he held what we're told was a vape pen. USA Today tells us that Columbus's police chief has yet to address whether the heavily armed police believed the device was a weapon. What will the Safer America plan do about that? 
the idea that more and more police with more and more money will amount to more safety for communities has been interrogated and challenged and straight up disproved for years now. We'll track this latest conversation going forward, but first, let's just revisit some of what we heard years ago, 2017 in this case, from someone who studied what works and what doesn't. Alex Vitale, professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College, is also author of the important book, The End of Policing. When we spoke with him in October 2017, I asked Alex Vitale about the broader narrative that girds the tough-on-crime approach. This is the problem with all this thin blue line and kind of war-on-cops discourse that's out there, is that it assumes that the world is divided up between good people and bad people, and that the only way to produce safety, to protect the good from the bad, is through coercive state power, the threat of arrest, the use of violence. And, of course, when we look at middle-class, leafy, suburban communities, they don't need police to manage their social problems. They have mechanisms and resources to regulate those things themselves, And, of course, they're beneficiaries in large part from the basic political and economic arrangements. And so no one feels like, oh, well, of course, they need heavy-handed policing in those communities. It's poor people who are perceived to be only responsive to this kind of coercive power. Um, well, the book, and I, I do want to, to get on to it, because the book talks about alternatives. It talks about a way that we could do things differently. So I wanted to get you started talking about that. When we're talking about this kind of, um, you know, you say at one point, whole segments of our society have been deemed always already guilty. Um, and it's there that the most help is needed, of, of course. So what are some of the alternatives to policing that the book is, is getting at? Well, what I do is I I take eight areas of policing and look at the origins of that kind of policing, what the problem is it claims to be trying to solve, and then look at the literature that shows just how many problems that kind of policing actually produces rather than resolves, and then try to lay out a series of alternatives to relying on police. So we don't need nicer school police. We don't need better trained school police. The whole idea of school policing is deeply flawed. All the research shows that it doesn't make young people any safer. It contributes to an environment of insecurity for young people. It's also often demeaning, degrading, abusive, and at times even deadly to these young people. There are alternatives to relying on police to deal with discipline issues in schools. And there are schools that are using these methods, like restorative justice programs, where the whole school is oriented not towards driving people out of school and into the criminal justice system, but in trying to actually resolve problems. And they use various forms of peer mediation, peer adjudication. We could look at a community schools model that's being tried out in some areas where the school 
is seen as a resource center for the whole community so that after hours on the weekends there are classes and services available to the families of students so that if there is a mental health issue, if there is an English as a second language problem that maybe is contributing to financial insecurity, if there are nutrition issues, health issues, the school could be seen as a resource for that rather than just another place where young people are criminalized. And I would say the book also talks about, you know, police dealing with people with mental illness. It talks about the war on drugs and border policing and political policing, as you say, a number of different aspects in which uh, the police seem to be taking on roles that would be better played by other social forces and other social mechanisms. Of course, what people will hear and should hear is that this requires resources. This requires a redirection of resources. And I think uh, I imagine that would be some of the pushback is simply this myth of scarcity that we hear that we, we just can't invest in communities somehow. So a lot of the money we're spending now on, on the criminal justice system is not making people safer. It's often making communities less safe because of the disruptive effects of cycling people through prisons and jails. And we could redirect a lot of those resources. The Youth Justice Coalition out in Los Angeles wrote a report a couple of years ago where they said, let's look at the spending in L.A. County on police, jails, courts. And if we redirected just 10 percent of that money, we'd have a billion dollars a year to spend on new youth programs. And they worked with young people to lay out a program of what kinds of services would actually help young people. And they had summer jobs and after-school programs and more counselors in the schools and these kinds of things rather than more school police, more gang suppression policing, more gang injunctions, the kinds of things that the county spends a lot of money on that don't work. Well, you do cite a lot of existing work that this is building on. So there is a, a history of consideration of this idea. And then, as you're saying, places where it's actually being tried or some aspects of it are, are being tried. Every chapter is filled with examples of alternatives that lay out a program that says there are non-coercive solutions to our problems, and the thing that's preventing us from doing them is not an absence of money, it's an excess of neoliberal, neoconservative, austerity politics that has labeled the poor as incapable of benefiting from any kind of positive, proactive interventions and defines them as basically only capable of responding to threats and punishment. And in a way, this is, I think, a kind of profoundly racist ideology. Even though it is embraced by many black and Latino politicians, it really treats their constituencies as less than fully human and then subjects them to dehumanizing treatment by the police, jails, prisons, etc. And so we can't just tinker with the police response to make it a little bit nicer or to make the police department a little more diverse, because none of that gets at this core problem. We have to really directly address the politics of the country that's largely bipartisan, that says that, you know, the only way we can solve problems is to criminalize them, whether it's homelessness, severe mental illness, discipline problems in schools, youth violence, etc. We've got to break this mindset that, Policing is the only tool that people can have. 
That was Alex Vitale speaking with Counterspin in October 2017. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. For more information, you can check out our website, FAIR.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.